Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. Today on the program, I have a gentleman who I first need to apologize to. Because probably, I don't know, Dave Brickus, it might have been like eight years, 10 years ago, 2008. I don't even know. But I was supposed to be on your podcast. And this is right as podcasts were starting. And I think I had something else kind of come up and I was like, ah, I'm just not going to be a part of that podcast. <laughs> yeah. And I stood yes, you exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was 2010. Yes. Uh, I stood you up. <laughs> You had a book. Which book was it? It was the Little Book of Leadership Development. Yep, yep. You had that book, uh, and I reached out to you because we had we had chatted on Twitter and had this fun leadership conversations long, long time ago. And you were yep. like, "Man, what's podcasting? That's not going to be a thing." Um, and then it was. It turned out to be a thing. So. Uh, you know what? I've missed a couple of them now, Dave. So I, I was I was in charge of a team. This is 1996, 97, 98. I was in charge of a team. And one of our team members, this is a brainstorming session, said, you know, we should get cell phones. And I looked at, I looked at this team member who's actually been on this podcast. And I said, why would you ever need a cell phone? You, are, you have a calling card. You're good. <laughs> so I'm a little late to the game. Here it is like 10 years later, and now I have a podcast. And I, I just want to say thank you for showing up. But for all of our <laughs> listeners, uh, Dave Burkus, he's, he's prolific. His work has been featured in HBR, Inc. He's on Forbes, Bloomberg. He speaks uh, internationally. Uh, and, and so I'm going to put a lot of his bio in the show notes. And you'll have access to all of his resources. Really, really great stuff. I just today received that Read, Watch, Listen. He has a wonderful mailing list, and you can consume his content in so many different ways. I mean, you're just prolific. You really are. I'm going to take, take us through probably your, well, your last five books. And I just want to do a little elevator speech so people have a sense of kind of who you are. That's the bio we'll do. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I guess we're making up for lost time, right? We are. We, it's like I've had a podcast this. for 10 years now. You know, if I think back to that, by the way, I do think I interviewed your co-author. You I did. Mitch Cousy. Yeah, you did. Yeah. You did. Yeah. He did. I just didn't show up. I was, you know. <laughs> he, meanwhile, you're interviewing people like Dan Pink and, you know, yes, right? Smart, Scott. So, Myths of Creativity. Tell us, what's the elevator speech on that book? Yeah, well, the stories that we tell ourselves are true, even if they're not true, right? The stories, the things that we tell ourselves about how the world is supposed to work, how organizations are supposed to work, how leadership is supposed to work, how creativity is supposed to work, affect how we see that, right? You and I know that from as psychology buffs as confirmation bias, but yeah. that's the way I like to phrase it, right? Nice. And in the case of creativity, there are a lot of stories that we tell ourselves 
that often we tell ourselves to let ourselves off the hook. Stories like the Eureka myth, right? That these great ideas come from somewhere and they arrive at us and we have this Eureka moment, which is a way of taking yourself off the hook because if yeah. you don't have the inspiration, you don't have to do anything, right? Um, or even inside of organizations, there's this, I call it the cohesive myth, the idea that uh, it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed ah. to be energetic. And if you're not doing that while you're uh, brainstorming or ideating or, or solving a problem as a, as a team, you're failing in some capacity. And in reality, conflict, right, and a lack of cohesion, a, a respectful debate yeah. is actually what makes ideas better, right? So a lot of these stories we tell ourselves – we tell ourselves to let ourselves off the hook or we think that's how it works. And as a result, we're actually limiting our own creative ability. I don't, I don't know that there are any people that are not creative, yeah. right? Because I, I, I have children and both of them were in kindergarten at one point and both of them were incredibly creative. Yes. So something else happens as they get older to exercise the creative muscle in some people and not in others. And I think we can unlearn whatever that was. And so the miss of creativity was an attempt to do that both from an individual, but from a team leader perspective to say, these are the things you might be saying about how this is supposed to work in your work. Yeah. And if we correct them, maybe we can unleash another level of creativity on your team. Okay. So that's best-selling book number one, right? <laughs> sure. Yes. Okay. Okay. Best-selling book number two, Under New Management. Yeah. Back here. Oh, here's, all right. So what's the elevator pitch for that one? Great leaders don't innovate the product, they innovate the factory, right? Ah. So um, that started hundreds of years ago with uh, the the villain in all of our principles of management lectures, Frederick Taylor, right? <laughs> um, we don't give him enough credit though. The man innovated the way factory work was done and unleashed a soul-sucking, but much higher level of productivity, right? Yeah. And I think that tinkering, that experimentation, that constantly trying to innovate the way we work shouldn't have ever gone away, but for some reason it sort of did, right? We yeah. dragged industrial management ideas with us from the factory to the office and a lot of places still haven't left them. So under new management was an attempt to look at some of the cutting edge movements in terms of how work is organized, see which ones are fads like holacracy and open offices and which ones are, hmm, this actually has something to it. And this is probably going to be the new way we're going to work like remote work, which is, you know, what we're also going to talk about today um, <laughs> or, or salary transparency or, or things that increase levels of trust autonomy in the organization. Um, so that was the idea, right? What are the companies that are doing management a little bit differently? And then is there some psychological science behind how they're doing it that suggests that this isn't a fad. This is where we're moving in the shift from industrial work to what Drucker would have called knowledge work to whatever's coming after that creative work, if you will, yeah. um, whatever we're going to call it. That shift requires that we innovate how we do work and smart leaders figure that out. And so that was my attempt to kind of shine a spotlight on you should be paying attention to these trends. Okay. Now there's, well, there's TED Talks and Google Talks on these other two, but friend of the friend, or friend of a friend, I should say. Yeah. Tell us about that. Best yeah. Book. Um, so friend of a friend, there is, a, there actually is, there's a TEDx talk on friend of a friend. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's really quite fun because it, it blends stories of like Dana White and uh, NFL football players and a bunch of stuff. Dana White, by the way, is CEO of uh, the UFC. So I find that cool. Other people are like, who is that guy? Anyway. Um, the idea behind Friend of a Friend is that uh, most people hate networking. Like it's, it's, it's a book about networks, but it's a book about how networks work because most people don't need a book about how to network. They don't want to do it, right? Yeah. Networking makes us feel dirty, feels sleazy, feels inauthentic, usually because we're reading a book written by one person and then going and trying to apply that one person's advice 
And then we feel inauthentic. Well, no wonder you're, you're pretending to be Keith Ferrazzi in that moment. Not that Keith's wrong or not that Dale Carnegie is wrong. They're just not you. Yeah. Right. So what friend of a friend is, is an attempt to teach how networks work through the lens of network science, the people who study how communities form, how you keep people groups together and connected, how information flows through um, communities and through organizations. And then once you know that, you can come up with a plan for what you need to use the network around you to improve your life or your career, et cetera. It's really, to be honest with you, it's a book not only about networking, but also about leadership from the standpoint of knowing what's going on in the informal network in your organization. Um, I think most readers thought of it as a networking book. The majority of emails I get from readers are how it helped them find a new job or something like that, which again, <laughs> is, is great. Yeah. But like there's chapters about echo chambers in there and there's chapters that are like that would really help a lot of people avoid some red flags if they paid attention to what diversity in their network was lacking, for example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the that's the gist of it is it is an attempt to show how networks work through the lens of network science, but not in that kind of academic way. That's the through line through all of my work. Actually, oh, yeah. I'm trying to trying to like drag good ideas out of the ivory tower and drag them over to the corner office, which I love, which I absolutely love. Well, and, and then pick a fight. Yeah. Pick a Fight was a super fun project. I thought it was going to be my only project in 2020, but you know, I think all of us had different plans for 2020. Yeah. Um, and, and the gist there is that I was doing a lot of work around teams and how do you keep teams bonded and motivated and aligned and what's the role of purpose in teams and in leadership and really just coming to terms with the fact that people are really failing at the purpose game, right? Like we've known there's an importance to organizational purpose and vision and mission for a long time. And yet people are just as unengaged as they were two decades before, right? Yeah. Um, they're just as unable to see the connection between the corporate mission statement on the 10K and their own individual job. And I think that's a problem. And when you look at the teams that do it really well and the companies that do it really well, most of them don't use this rhetoric, but what I learned is that a good litmus test is if I could walk inside that organization and pull a random person and say, hey, here in this company, what are we fighting for? Mm. And they could understand that question and answer it. Then that organization has done a great job conveying its purpose. People don't want to join a company. They want to join a crusade. They want to join a cause. They want to join something that makes them feel that their day-to-day -day work is bigger than themselves. And most yeah. leaders know that. I'm not saying anything new there. Yeah. What most leaders lack is how to do it. And yeah. so what I did was try and look at the rhetoric and even the research around what inspires people to fight, not always violent fights, although we did look at some interesting research on what causes people to join terrorist cells and that sort of thing, yeah. but also fight the way you fight for social justice, right? Fight the way that you would stage a protest and try and move the needle on policy. Fight the way you would for legislative changes. Fight the way you would to, to overhaul an industry. Um, fight the way you would to be Rocky trying to prove people wrong, which is we use that as a, as a Netflix example um, of that Rocky story versus Blockbuster. We use all of those things and, and really arrive at here's a couple different templates you can use. And the, the current organizational mission probably already meets one of those templates. It's just it needs to be phrased that way, because when it's blah, 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 innovation, blah, 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 shareholder value, blah, blah, yeah. blah, integrity, yeah. nobody has a clue what we're doing or why we're doing it. Yeah, it's not in the heart, not in the soul of the of the people doing the work, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was so that was an audiobook that came out audio only. It was a cool project we did with Audible. Came out in February of 2020. The idea is that more and more leaders are listening and consuming content via audio on their commute, 
you know, on their drive in or the subway ride into work. And so why not put it just in that format that they would love? Yeah. And so we launched it in that format the last day of February, February 28th, actually second to last day because it was a leap year. February 28th, and about a week later, the world ended, and everyone's commute stopped, and nobody listened to audiobooks for like six <laughs> weeks. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was a really interesting one to try um, and market. And as a result, it's become this little like, uh, I don't ever want to compare myself to this, but it's sort of like my Rocky Horror Picture Show, right? It's sort of that little cult thing that there's a much smaller percentage of the readership community has actually read Pick a Fight, but those yeah. that do love it, right? So you yeah. should totally get it and listen to it. The whole audiobook's only like two hours long. Yeah. Um, but for an obvious reason, it didn't really get the resonance <laughs> that anything else did because some pretty crazy stuff happened the rest of 2020. Well, I want to get to 2020, Dave, but what I want to get to first, I want, you're prolific and you have been for decades, right? You, you are. Well, decade, let's be fair. Well, before that, you're (laughs) earning your PhD, my friend. Right. Right. And, and teaching at a university and on faculty. And I mean, it's, it's. What's driving you? What there? It's just really interesting because as I watch you from afar, I receive your emails, I follow you on social media. Um, you're just productive. I mean, you you are so productive. I, there's few people as productive as you. Yeah, and you've been dripping that on me for about a decade, <laughs> which is brilliant. But talk about that. Talk about your process. Yeah, well, I think it's um, I think it's a dash of uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, a dash of narcissism, and then a heaping tablespoon of wanting to make work not suck. Um, that's actually how I ended Pick a Fight was like sort of the distillation of why I do all of this work is that I think work is too important to drain as many people as it does. I think the experience of being on a team and going to work is such a huge percentage of our calendar, no matter where we do it. Oh, yeah. It's it's such a huge percentage of our calendar that, um, and it touches so many other areas of our life that I don't think we can afford to just put up with the idea that like, meh, you know, only two out of 10 people uh, have jobs that they would label callings and are highly engaging. I I don't, I don't accept that. I think that's a tragedy, right? I, I'll I'll tell you, so I'll tell you a story. The big, the big distillation of that for me happened actually after pick a fight when the, when the world ended COVID happened, my, my wife is an ER doctor. Okay. And so we were front lines of all of it. I mean, I remember, I remember early March hearing the reports. I drove to Sam's club and dropped like $500 on frozen foods. Cause I was convinced that she was going to get it in the next week. And then we were all going to get it and self isolate for like a month. Right. Yeah. This is yeah. back when we had no idea what quarantine schedules were or whatever. This is early March. Yeah. yeah. I was and afraid so she- to get my mail. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. This, this is, and so she started this routine of coming back back from the hospital, and we set up basically like almost the equivalent of one of those like disinfection stations you see in like in movies, yeah. right? Like um, in our garage, and everything gets Lysoled, and you know, clothes clothes change, outfits change. We we didn't like drag a, a washer dryer to the garage, but we did everything but that, right? Yeah. Um. And I had a realization after watching this process for like three weeks that she's doing that to protect the rest of her life from this virus, right? 
And if you think about it, and I don't want to over glorify what I do compared to what she does, because it just it does not compare. Yeah. But if you think about it, that's actually all of us. If you're in a, a workplace that really drags you down, if you're in an environment that really, I mean, you could you could spout all you want about work life balance, but if your job drains you, makes you angry, makes you you bring that home with you, right? Yeah. Unless you've got some ritual to truly disinfect yourself from all of that negativity and crap, um, that spills over into your the rest of your life, no matter how hard you try to balance the two spheres. Yeah. And so that experience of work, we're not going to change it, right? Think about the technological advances we've had in the last hundred years. And then we still work about the same amount of hours every, every week. Right. Yeah. So clearly we want to be doing this. We just want to do work that doesn't suck. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's my, that would be sort of the why behind all of that productivity. Um, to, to be fair though, let's not, let's not negate what I said the first there's a bit of ADHD and a bit of narcissism in there. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, is there, can you think of an organization or a few organizations that do a good job? If you, if you look at the, the holistic body of work, mm -hmm. can you think of an organization or a couple organizations that are doing it well? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It, it seems like most organizations don't do it well forever, right? Like I'm, I've become really sour on case studies unless you look at them as snapshots of time. But sure. you know, how many how many companies in good to great aren't even around anymore? <laughs> you know, much much less are no longer great. Um, uh, there's a few that I think are fascinating to examine, but I think it's it's usually easier to look at it through the lens of not a whole company but a specific leader, right? Okay. Because that that change is different. Um, in the in the new book, in Leading from Anywhere, we talk about the uh, the Belgian Ministry of Social Security, which had a, a new leader about uh, over a decade ago, Frank Van Massenhove, and he saw it as I mean, this was th that well, actually, that was probably as inspiring to work at as the American you know administration, Social Security administration, right? Yeah. These are not the the most engaging things. It's like working at the DMV, right, or something like that. And he aspired to sort of change that, to make the culture a lot better, um, to make it something that civil servants actually wanted to apply to, right? On average, they were getting like maybe one or two applications for every opening, which really does not give you the best people to work with if you don't have lots of people to choose from, right? Um, so we wanted to turn a lot of that around and you realize that it would depend on um, being forthcoming about trust and autonomy, letting people know what they need to work on and letting them work on it. And giving them the autonomy to determine how they do that. And what's funny is every policy change flowed out of that. And we can talk about specific policy changes, which is usually what people ask when they say, hey, what organization does it right? And you want to say like, oh, well, such and such company because they have this policy of whatever. But I think that's the different thing. I think it takes that shift of, of flipping towards trust and autonomy. Wow. And that, that created a, a largely remote workforce where it's what I would call a work from anywhere workforce where um, employees are there maybe 20% of the time at any given time. Um, it created a, a more efficient workplace. People weren't gaming the system, trying to get every little expense, you know, uh, made. It created a more gender balanced workplace, um, uh, which they, there wasn't even a formal gender balanced program, but it became one of the most integrated and inclusive, uh, arms of the Belgian government simply because they gave that trust and autonomy and that flexibility. So, I like to, I usually like to cite that example, not only because it's government, right? Which proves you can do it anywhere. Cause if yeah. you can make it work in government, you can make it work anywhere. Um, but also that that's the problem first. People often come to me and go, cause I wrote, I did the big Ted talk was about salary transparency and they go, oh, yep. how transparent should we be? And like, well, how trusting are your people now? Like there's a bigger problem we need to solve first in almost every case. 
Um, and now with work from anywhere, people are like, oh, well, well, um, you know, should, what, what spying software should we use? Buddy, if you can't trust your people to do your work, you screwed up a long time ago and it doesn't matter what software you use to monitor them, right? So I like, I like to use that example. Um, we talk about it in Leading From Anywhere. There's also, there's a great little book by um, two uh, Danish friends of mine called The Corporate Rebels. These two like 20 somethings that quit their jobs and just went on this. I don't know who bankrolled them on this, by the way. But just <laughs> went on this world tour of visiting like a hundred different companies and organizations that were doing work differently and chronicling their lessons. Um, and that's where I first heard about uh, the Belgian social security thing. But the more I research him and watch his stuff and read his stuff, it's a, just a fascinating example. So Pick a Fight came out. We're excited to talk and start working with organizations about, you know, finding a better way to frame their purpose and mission and finding ways to teach job crafting, as Amy Rosneski would, would put it. Um, and then obviously COVID happens and the world doesn't need that, right? Like what the world needs is how do we just survive? How do I yeah. get, how do I make sure my people have a decent internet connection, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And all of this sort of stuff. And I was already thinking about and digesting a lot of research, furthering pick a fight around teams. And, you know, the line I use now is that one of my other goals, uh, besides the corporate office to the, from the ivory tower to the corporate office is I'm trying to help teams do their best work ever. Right? Yeah. So I was already looking at what makes a great team. I put out a video before COVID about this idea that they are um, intellectually diverse, right? Psychologically safe, and then have a cause worth fighting for, right? And you need all three of those things because what good is diversity if people don't feel safe enough to speak up? And then, and then what good is having all of that if there's no purpose to sort of inspire them? And so I was looking at those sort of things. And then I got an email from my um, publisher and they said, hey, we were we were in an editor's meeting and we were talking about... COVID and the response and what do companies need to know. And as we started throwing out names of companies as templates, we realized that half of them you profiled in under new management. Ah. Have you studied this remote work trend? Would you be interested in writing a book about remote remote work trends and all of that sort of stuff? And I said, um, can I have the weekend? And so they, cause they emailed me on like a Friday afternoon <laughs> and I thought about it and it was Memorial Day weekend too. So I actually vividly remember um, I was at the pool attached to our gym outdoors Memorial Day weekend. First time anybody's like out at the gym pool. And as we're talking to old friends, so many of them bring up that they're managing this and they're now they went to remote. And I was like, I felt awful. I felt like an investigative reporter. Cause I was like, stop what you're doing and talk to me. Um, <laughs> Don't swim with your kids. I don't care that he can do the slide on his own. Like, talk to me. Yeah. yeah. And um, and what I realized, looking at what books were already available, there's already some great books about remote work, Jason Fried and David Hedmeyer Hansen, but that's sort of a manifesto for how to make your whole company remote, right? Yeah. And then I was looking at what's coming because you can search on Amazon for like forthcoming books and see who in the space, like there's a couple different researchers that study remote companies that are later in the year coming out with their, here are the trends about remote work. But I said that my conversations that day, and then also my gut instinct based on the hole in the market, is that there isn't a manual for, I'm a mid-level manager at a thousand person organization that just went remote. What the heck do I do? Yeah. Right. Um, there was, here's how to run your whole company remote. And then here's how remote work will shape the economy. But none of that is useful if you're, uh, you know, senior regional sales director of 11 people and you're just trying to figure out how to get that team to feel like a team again, even though they're not in the same person. Yeah. So I wrote them back on Monday morning or, or Tuesday morning because of Memorial Day. And I said, that that's the book I'd be interested in writing. And they said, great. How soon can you write it? <laughs> uh, I said, 
it's, it was Memorial Day weekend. And I said, you know, if I, if I canceled everything and I just really harmed it and focused on this, I could probably get you a first draft by Labor Day. Wow. And they said, great. And then they sent a contract. And in the email with the contract, they said, hey, by the way, um, do you think you could make it August 31st instead of Labor Day? <laughs> so they moved it up by a week. My goal here wasn't to have all the answers, yeah. right? It, it was to give some of the answers based on where people are right now, Yeah. <laughs> right? And so I normally like to spend like a year researching a question that will become the book, right? Yeah. And I didn't really get to do that here. But I already had relationships with a lot of thriving remote companies. I have been working mostly from home for the last decade of my own life. Um, and I'm w like well aware of the research on thriving teams, both in person and remote. And so I felt like, okay, we've got enough here to put something together um, that I think would be useful and, and helpful. And in reality, as I started writing the book, a, a bigger realization came to mind to where I didn't feel pressure to write the, the I mean, it's, I call it the essential guide to managing remote teams, but the big title is leading from anywhere because I think that's where we're headed. And that realization came in July late June, early July, as I was writing the book, is that we're going back to the office, but not all of us and not all at once. And so what's actually going to be happening here is a greater level of trust and autonomy. There's those words again, a yeah. greater level of trust and autonomy in how we lead our teams and manage our teams and a greater intentionality on how we keep them bonded. Yeah. Um, and that was sort of like, oh, well, that's a, that's a great answer to a much smaller question, but a much more pressing question for most people, right? If you're the uh, a mid-level manager at Frito-Lay, we got you now. And and I think the existing literature didn't, and I, don't, I didn't see it in a lot of the other books that I knew were coming because they were looking at sort of that macro. Um, I, we call it the essential guide. I actually wanted to call it the survival guide, but they wouldn't let me. Um, but that <laughs> that's sort of the goal, right? Is that here's your, we're, we're basically, even if you're at the office now or going back to the office, your whole team is not, they're not going to be there all of the time. Yep. Everybody needs to learn the lessons that we learn from great remote teams and great remote companies, even if you get to see your people once or twice a week. Yeah. Um, but everybody should probably consider themselves remote leaders to some extent because that's where we're headed. What were a couple of things that stood out for you? I'll give you one of the biggest ones and it leads off uh, It leads off the book because I think it's one of the biggest problems is that, and this is actually from research that was conducted BC before Corona yeah. um, <laughs> around, around virtual teams and where the biggest breakdowns are. And then, and then, so I read that study and then got to watch it happen throughout the whole world. Um, and that is that virtual teams that thrive or virtual teams that fail to thrive, um, they all, they either, they either find a way to adopt shared understanding and shared identity, or they don't. Right. Huh. And, and that makes all of the difference. And, and I'll define those terms real quick. Shared under, shared understanding is about how we think of each other. It is, do I understand the knowledge, skills, and abilities of each person on the team? Do I understand their work preferences, their new work preferences based on their new environment? I mean, the, the only nice thing about the Monday through Friday, nine to five environment is that it would guarantee that you're probably going to see that person, yeah. right? Um, which means lots of stuff happens accidentally and you don't have to be intentional about a lot of stuff. Um, shared understanding also means, do I like, do I, do I know their calendar? Do I know how they want to receive feedback? Do I know, 
Um, do I know how they want to, how they normally ask for help? Some people are not very specific about putting out calls for help. And as a result, they feel like no one's helping them because no one knows they're asking for help, right? Shared yeah. understanding speaks to all of that. In the short term, we saw this, the biggest lack of shared understanding for a lot of organizations happen from a, a shared understanding of the context people were working in, right? Yeah. So think back to June, July of 2020, or, or maybe even April and May of 2020, I'm lucky enough to be recording this and working most days from about a 10 by 10 room in the basement of my house. It's quiet. Even though my kids just came home from school, I heard them. You didn't hear them, right? Um, I'm, I'm lucky in that regard. Right? Yeah. Other people bought a folding screen at Home Depot and pulled it across the corner of their dining room. And that's been their office for nine months, yeah. right? As a team leader, I have two very different expectations of those two different people, right? And as a member of that team, I have two very different expectations. And if I just take the time to understand the context, the whole relationships becomes more effective, right? So shared understanding is that big one that I think a lot of organizations struggled with and still do in the early days. Okay. Shared identity speaks to how well I feel like the team that I'm currently serving on is my real team. Uh, right. How I, how well I identify with their purpose, with their mission. I feel like that's my team. And in, in a world of sort of cross-functional and multi-matrixed and all that, I mean, consultants make billions of dollars building matrix organizations just so other consulting firms can make billions tearing them back apart. Right. <laughs> um, but what that creates is really a lack of an idea of identity. And actually I got to get personal here because I remembered, I, I never thought of it as a remote work job. But in between college and graduate school, um, I worked as a sales rep and as a as a traveling salesman. I didn't die like in the book, but yeah. um, but I realized in that moment that I had three or four reps that were also in my city, and then I had a manager who was not in my city, and who had a team of people, who, none of whom were in my city. Right. Yeah. So which one's my team? Right? Is my team the people that report to my manager, or is my team the two people that live in the same city as me? So I know if I need help, they're the ones that'll help me. Right? Shared identity sort of speaks to that idea. Yeah. And I think this is where we're headed. This is the big pitfall we're headed for in 2021 as people start to come back to the office at different paces. Is we always talked about us versus them and silos and politics and turf wars, but it was often functional. I think we're headed for a world if we're not. A paying attention to it and are deliberate about building community and identity, we're headed for a world of sort of us versus them, co-located versus remoters, right? And uh, the more co-located you are, the more you feel like those are the real employees and these remoters are something else. And that's going to be a huge problem, not only because top talent doesn't want to be at the office from nine to five, Monday through Friday anymore, um, but also just because things will break down. So that shared identity piece is, is I think the future thing to look out for. How are you going to make sure that no matter where your team is, they feel like this is the team and yeah. it doesn't matter where we're located. We're all working together alone. And that's an adaptive challenge, right? Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, in the book, we throw out a bunch of different activities that work from a bunch of different companies. So there's small things that you can do, right? Um, little stuff like adding buffer time at the beginning or end of a meeting for people to have socialization time. I don't think anybody wants to do another like, Zoom happy hour. I think we're hungover from Zoom happy hours, but little little buffers of time at the beginning of the meeting, the end of the meeting, where people talk about their day, the stuff that would have happened in a co-located office, yeah. right? Um, even things like, and I'm seeing this more and more, even things like little rituals, the things that your team does that no other team does, right? Um, maybe it's a it's a random chant or an inside joke that we always share on the Slack channel on Monday, right? Or like one team I I worked with, 
Um, they ignore all of the little emojis that Zoom and Microsoft Teams have now, but they recreate them while they're on mute, right? So you might be talking and somebody really likes your point. So you're just going to see jazz hands <laughs> from that little corner. Um, and it's awesome, right? Because everybody knows what it means. So it creates this sense of community um, around that. It's much more little stuff like that. I mean, you know this because you know the literature. The ropes courses and the trust fall stuff never really built teams anyway. Yeah. It was much more about the habits and the regular rituals and things. It's just that in a co-located team, those happened organically. Now we need to be a bit more deliberate about it. But there is no one prescription. Do this and your team will feel like a team. Um, there are a bunch of different things you have to fill out. Actually, let me correct myself because sure. there is one thing that probably everybody listening to this, if you lead a team, should do. And that is an exercise that I call a team working agreement which oh. is uh, basically our, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like our rules for how we're going to conduct business over the next six months or whatever. And yeah. this is, most teams have this or can flush this out when they're co-located non-verbally. But now we need to be much more deliberate about it because yeah. we can't rely on that storming, norming, forming stuff that Tuckman always wrote about. Yeah. So we need to have the conversation up front. Hey, what, what topics are for email? What topics warrant a simultaneous conversation like a Zoom call? Hey, how do we want to give each other feedback? How do we want to make requests for, for help? Yep. Um, what's a reasonable amount of time to wait for a response to an email before you call someone? Yep. All of those little things um, that are often unstated, if they're left unstated, everyone's going to develop their own little rules. Yes, And it's much better to have that conversation. And what I encourage people to do is... As the leader, do that as a series of questions like what I just listed out. But when the team arrives at, a, um, at an answer, write it in the affirmative. So we, we agree that 24 hours is a reasonable amount of time to wait for an email, right? Yeah. And then you have your working agreement, or as I sometimes when I'm feeling uh, a little too patriotic, I call it the declaration of interdependence. <laughs> um, but, but it's the same idea, right? These are our rules. And that can become a great document for not only just helping people not feel like they're out on their own or feel alienated for a reason that was really just misreading of someone's communication. It helps onboarding when a new member of the team comes on. Hey, these are our rules of the road. This is how we interact, yeah. right? Um, it helps conflict resolution. It helps all sorts of stuff. So I would say that's the one thing I would tell you. I don't care wh what company you work for, what team you're on, do that. Everything yeah. you do after that to build a team is probably going to depend on the team. Well, I love it because so much of our work in the presentation book, Online Presentations by Design, you're exactly right. So many of the norms are new. Mm -hmm. Should people be on camera? What's the expectation? What should I be wearing? And all of that was unspoken. And I've spoken with leaders who who say, well, gosh, you know, 40% of my people aren't even on camera. Well, you, have you had the conversation? Yeah. Have you, have you set forth that contract as to what we're, can people be on a walk while they're listening to the Zoom? Is that okay? Or should I feel bad about that? And all of those norms and those expectations that we took for granted now have to be, and I love the word, in, in our book, we we're using the word design. But I love the word intentionality as well, mm -hmm. because we have to be intentional about designing how it's going to work for us. So I love what you're saying. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, yeah, I love it too. Great. I'm curious, actually, what did you decide on the, the video camera thing? Because in Leading From Anywhere, I, I basically came up with the rule of everyone on camera or no one on camera. In other words, there are times in the meeting, like when we're discussing, which should be the primary reason for the meeting anyway, not just the delivery of information that could have been an email or a video recording, right? Um, but when we're discussing, everybody should be on camera. 
right? But there are times where nobody needs to be on camera except like the presenter, right? Yeah. And I, again, it's an intentionality thing, but that became sort of my rule, right? Because the worst thing that can happen is a discussion where only half the people are on camera because you'll see the nonverbals of like, you even told me before we started, if I do this, it means I'm going to jump in, yeah. right? I can, yeah. If you're not on camera, I can't see that. <laughs> and especially like if you're not on camera and you're accidentally on mute, I can't hear you speak up either, right? Yeah. So in the discussion times, everyone, but that, that ended up being my, my rule, right? It's like everybody or nobody. I also came up, I also, and I, I stole this from Basecamp and uh, Jason Freed. And the, I think I stole it straight from the remote book because it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, it was the idea that in a meeting, and I think this is especially important as we move to this work from anywhere future, either the meeting is 100% in person or it's 100% virtual. In oh. other words, it's no longer okay for four people in a conference room around one of those little, like, looks like a tarantula, yeah. but it produces sound. You know, you know I don't even know what that's <laughs> called. Speakerphone doesn't quite cover its level of intimidatingness. But, but, you know, we used to do that, right? Everybody around with the one, no, right? No. If, if one person can't make it to the meeting, everybody go back to your office and jump on your computer because we want a level playing field for the discussion. Yeah. Otherwise, power dynamics come into play. People self-censor. We don't even hear certain ideas. Our meeting is worse off. Um, it's great if we can have 100% people in the meeting, but the second best thing is everyone on video, not half and half. That's actually the, the worst of the three possible options. Well, it makes me think of HyFlex, the, the, the model in higher education right now, where you have four people in the room and seven people on Zoom and... It's, it's intense. We didn't come up with a hard and fast rule. We just said, look, have the conversation, figure out what, what is applicable to your culture and what the norm is going to be and have that be the norm. And I've had leaders say, look, I really value everyone being on full time. Yeah. I've had leaders say, look, I don't care if you're in a sweatshirt and your dog's in your lap, just be yeah. on camera. I want you on camera. I don't care. So it's, it's interesting because all of these new ways of being really, we have to be intentional. We have to to design how we're going to work moving forward. And I love, I love your phrasing of to make work not suck. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if fundamentally, so here's the interesting thing about work, right? Fundamentally, I sometimes get to work with nonprofit leaders, right? And it's always really interesting because they say, oh, but it's so different because everyone here is a volunteer, and I always tell them the same thing, which is everyone in for-profits a volunteer too, mm. right? Like I, whatever our exchange is, an annual salary for my knowledge, right? A, an amount of time for my presence, whatever our exchange is, I opted into that exchange. You didn't force it on me, yeah. right? That's been illegal for like a hundred years, thank God, hundred plus, right? Um, so everyone is still that volunteer. And so I fundamentally believe that everybody who takes a job, a new job, shows up excited to do that job. Yeah. And the role of a leader is don't screw that up. Right? Yeah. Yes. So, and, and, and if you work in a sucky organization, then your job is human shield so that you protect those people from the rest of it. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's too important to, to what we do and what we opted in for to, to suck for so many people. Yeah. Two out of 10. Two out of 10? Yeah. So, in, I mean, that's that's using the Gallup engagement figures. Yep, and you yep. and I could have a super nerdy conversation about what engagement metric is best, Gallup's versus other ones. Um, it's actually probably three out of 10 um, in the United States. Uh, but worldwide, it's two out of 10. And the interesting thing is it hasn't budged for 20 years, right? And the reason I pick on Gallup, it goes back to pick a fight, is that one of the questions in their inventory is, does the mission and vision of the company make me feel my job is important, right? Wow. 
So for as long as Gallup has been asking that question, presumably organizations have been learning, hmm, our engagement numbers are low, therefore we should work on this this item, right? And whether they have or they haven't, it hasn't moved the needle, which tells me that whatever work they're doing is not working all that well. Yeah. Any other, real quick, because we're close on time, any other insights that you want to leave listeners with before we close down for the day, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we were talking about intentionality, and I, I think the other big hurdle that a lot of remote organizations, whether you consider yourself one or not, congratulations, you are, right? You are a work-from-anywhere organization at the least. I think one of the things a lot of people are going to struggle with is, is how do you build a team? How do you bond a team? We talked a bit about team identity, but I think one of the things we probably didn't talk about is the intentionality behind the physical meeting itself, because physical meetings are coming back but you're going to have to make sure that they're not like people. It used to be okay to walk out of a meeting and be like, Oh, that whole thing used to be an email. I mean, it wasn't okay. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't okay then, (laughs) but we put up with it because presumably everyone in the meeting was already in the office. So what's the difference? Yeah. Right now, if you're calling everyone together, you need to be much more intentional about that. Not only because that's your time where information is presented and ideas are discussed, that's your only time for bonding that team together as well. Yeah. So everything you need to do is respect that as well. I am bullish on the idea that, and I hope it's sooner rather than later. I'm not going to predict when it is, but whenever it happens, that everybody who wants a vaccine gets a vaccine and the world can open back up again, right? When that happens, I am bullish on gatherings, right? Um, I think people are going to want to gather. I think people are going to be excited about coming back to the office for a short period of time. They're going to be, I mean, imagine taking that same 90 minute commute from 2019, but being excited about it because it's the one time a week you're going to see everyone. And just like the first day at the job, the job of a leader is don't screw that up because people are going to have excitement about that. But if we just go back to the normal drudgery of those meetings, the lack of intentionality of those meetings, the lack of respect for the fact that those are where people bond and develop nonverbal forms of communication that translate over the poor design of those meetings. Sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> All of that. If we're not intentional about that, then people are going to loathe even coming to the 20% of the time they have to be at the office. Yeah. Anyway, such a beautiful puzzle, man. It's a beautiful puzzle and it's an important puzzle because I would hope that people would have great passion and joy in their work. And mm-hmm. it's, it's sad. I mean, it's opportunity for, for people like you and me to do work, to try and help figure out how to make uh, those numbers shift. But it's a fascinating puzzle. And it's one of those things where, like, I'm not a naive optimist. I don't know that we'll get to 10 out of 10 no. ever. No. Right? But the bar is so low. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Think about the gains if you go from 20% to 30%, right? 50% gain on engagement. What does that mean for productivity, for the organization, for you and your level of stress as a leader? Like, so yeah, it just takes some level of intentionality. And and I think it's, it's foolish to assume that we didn't need to be intentional about the last nine months. And some people think this, that we didn't need to be intentional because eventually we're all going back. Yeah. Right. That's done. That's over with. You do not send 70 million people to home to work for nine months and then just be like, come on back. It doesn't happen. You yeah. t- use the you said the word puzzle before. I mean, right. That's yeah. what we've all done with our calendars, with our lives. It used to be we had work right at the center of the puzzle and then we fit little stuff around the margins. 
Well, now it's much, for most people, for most knowledge workers at least, it's much more integrated. It's much more like a puzzle than ever before. They're not going to let you smash that and put your company back at the center of it. Most of your, especially your top talent, but most of your talent is not going to willingly go back to that. Sure. And so it takes some intentionality. We've got to, we got to do that puzzle. Everybody should be considering themselves a remote leader now, even if you're lucky enough to get to see your people every week. Yeah, I love it. So tell me what you're listening to real quickly. What are you what are you streaming, listening to? What content has you in awe right now? And it doesn't <laughs> well, have to do with it doesn't have anything it doesn't have to be leadership or teaming. It could just be something you're watching on Netflix that you've loved. Yeah, so I have an 8-year-old and a 6-year-old. So I don't I mean I have Netflix, but I don't have Netflix. During the lockdown, uh we only went through really one hard one where we where I live, but during it in the spring we decided to move forward the age of recommendation on the Marvel Cinematic Universe yes. and started showing them in order. And we're about halfway through and I'm trying to come up with a plan for how to explain to my eight-year-old, my six-year-old that Tony Stark died. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert, but come on, if you're watching this, I gave you like three years. Um, so that I actually just, I just finished listening to, so Audible, who I'm you know obliged to endorse because they did the whole pick a fight thing, has these audio plays that they do. So essentially, rather than just one person read a book, they get a whole cast of people and write a screenplay, but it's just, it's sort of like old timey radio, right? Oh, like wow, shadow yeah. episodes and that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm loving those. I listened to a Treasure Island one a while back. Um, I just finished listening to the audio play of Ender's Game, which is a sci-fi book that they told me that if I liked Ready Player One, I would like Ender's Game. Um, I don't actually know that they're equivalent, but they're both fascinating. Huh. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, that would be what I, uh, at least listening to, uh, consuming via non-text. I still consume a lot of information with my eyes. Yeah. I'm old school like that. I still read with my eyes a lot. You printing up journal articles and such, Dave? <laughs> I actually, I should show you the piles. Yes. <laughs> I, kill, I kill a lot of trees when <laughs> I write a book. And I feel bad about it, but I figure that the process of writing them still doesn't kill as many trees as publishing the book. So I, I'm okay, right? I print them all out. I'm actually so, I love books so much that I think writing in them is defacing them. So what I actually do is I read with, I can show it to you. I'm sure I've got it here somewhere. I read, I read with a little post-it note pad. And when I want to make a note, I stick that on. And then when I'm done with the book, I photocopy the page that I stuck this on. And then I write the note on the photocopied version and then I file the photocopied version away. See, right. that's, that's right. Awesome. I know it's crazy, but it, it does end up killing a lot of trees. And I do feel bad about that, but I don't <laughs> know how to change it. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm just real thankful for the work that you do, Dave. I, I love your energy. I love your enthusiasm. I love your curiosity and thanks. Thanks for doing what you do, man. It's, it's making a difference in the world and, and keep, working to make work not suck it's a great mission and well thanks that's, you know, that's that's your fight too so i appreciate it thanks for you thanks for having me on oh well thanks so much dave take care be well you too for me the practical wisdom in this whole conversation would be to go out and buy dave's latest book it's a brand new topic the research is emerging the thinking is emerging and he is one of the first to the gates at really thinking about this conversation about how we do virtual leadership, how we lead from anywhere, a conversation that's going nowhere. And Dave has some initial thoughts on how to be successful.
So that, my friends, is my advice. Go pick this book up because if you are leading others, this can be a resource to, as he said, it's not the end all be all, but it's some really important thinking to help you succeed. David Burkus, thank you for showing up. Thank you for the good work you do. Everybody, thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Be well. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.